for the, the cycle of judges, uh, which is basically a cycle of flop. Um, you see the people of God start off really well, and then they crash and they burn. And, and basically it goes from worse to worse to worse to worse until eventually um, the people insist that they need a king in Samuel. It does help, doesn't it, if your pages are in the right order. That is terrible. As, I, as we mentioned, my, uh, my printer died this morning. But very fortunately, I had printed off the sermon, just the sermon notes last night. So there they are. We start off with, this, with a story of Joshua. Um, as you know, one of only two people in the Bible without a parent. First one being Adam, the second one being Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua, the son of Nun, we're told is this amazing man of God. He's a, he's a, a military superhero. He's just one of those people who can know the strategies. He works, he follows God, he, he, he does what God says. Amazing victory as they go through the land. But, but more than that, here's a man who, who is a, a, a godly man, an example to the people of what it means to love God and trust God and follow God. Um, we, we don't know much about him. We, we know that, that when Moses was around, Joshua, the son of Nun, would spend time in the tent of the meeting where Moses met with God. You, you remember that place? Moses went in and his face shone so much from the glory of God that he covered it with a veil. And, and we're told there that Joshua stayed there. Moses left and spoke to the people. Joshua stayed. Here is a man for, for whom God is absolutely incredible who just wants to follow God and serve God. Joshua. He, he's one of the He's one of the most incredible people in Israel's history. One of the few people who is called a servant of God. He's a good man. And, and the elders and the leaders who were around during his time are also good men. They set a wonderful example for the people. But as so often happens, what happens is that when they die, things go backwards. Joshua lives a good, long life. hundred Was it 110 years old? Um, who's the oldest person in the church this morning? John. Eric. How old are you, Eric? Ah, oh, you're young. you still got, what, 28 years at least. I'd, he's a kindly... He's, he's kind of a godly man, isn't he? So, Yeah. I'm not even going to go there, Mark. <laughs> These are people who served the Lord, and, and, and in a sense, they were salt and light to their community. While they were around, people were happy to follow God. They, these were the kind of people that would remind the rest of the nation of all that God had done. They would say to them, no, this, this is the way we should live. We, we shouldn't go after foreign gods because our God saved us and He brought us through this ocean and the sea and, and the waters and Pharaoh's army and, and wow, and the plagues before that and then the mountain. And, and these were people who had experienced God and, and it had so caught onto them that, that they just couldn't let go of it. They, they were the people who would remind everyone 
of what God had done, about the person their God was. But then they went to meet their Savior, and we see in verse 10 this new generation that heads down this destructive, destructive path. The problem we're told is that they didn't know God for themselves. They, if they had any faith, it was a second-hand faith. And you cannot live on the spiritual experience of your parents. In fact, you cannot live on the spiritual experience of anyone. You can't live on the spiritual experience of your pastor. You can't live on the spiritual experience of your small group leader. It's got to be your own. Because what happens is that person steps out of the picture and all of a sudden you are by yourself. For me, verse 10 is just horribly, horribly sad. They knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. And whatever they had been taught just hadn't sunk in. And they certainly hadn't looked to find God for themselves. I wonder sometimes if this isn't a problem for us in the church today that do we really know all that God has done for his people or, or do we just know part of the story or, or does it sink in completely or, or are we just living the faith of another person second hand do, do we know God fully do we just know him as saviour I mean to know God as saviour is wonderful but but God is more than just the one who plucks us out of danger. God is the, the, the He's got a character of love. He's got a heart of compassion. He's, do, do we know the three persons of the three yet one God? Or do we just know Jesus? I mean, do we have depth to our faith? Philippians 3.10, uh, Paul says that what we need to know is is Christ and the power of His resurrection. Do, do we know what God has done for us, for ourselves? Got to remember, I've got to remember as I, as I preach this, that there are many people here who are of the first generation the Joshuas who have children who are perhaps in some way similar to verse 10. And if you speak to people in that situation, it is a hurt and a pain. Because you follow after God, you want to honor Him, you have personally experienced Him, you know who He is, you know His power, you know His grace. And yet your children have left and have abandoned him. I think what we have to remember here in this, in this chapter though is that, that the parents are not condemned for what happens in verse 10. 
person is saved not so much by their parents' faith, but by their own faith. It has to be real for yourself. If it's not real for you, you have no hope. Because each generation, if it's not real for you, why would you bother? And so what we find here is the generation who are so touched by God's saving power die out and we enter into this horrible cycle that happens time and again throughout the book of of Judges. And cycle is actually a wrong word for it because it's more like a downward spiral. So the people, without the the salt and light influence of of their forebears, they turn to sin, they, they abandon God. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the, the fertility gods of the nations. I mean, paganism is always very close uh, to Israel. They, they're always just a step away from serving foreign gods. And, and we see it most clearly there in their, in their marrying the people of the nations who are still in the land. They marry them and first thing they do, they, they start worshipping the gods of the new wife or the new husband. So they abandon God. And then the cycle moves. God says, well, I am your God. You are my precious people. I do not want you to abandon me. I'm going to call you back. The way I'm going to do that is I'm going to, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to chastise you. Hebrews says uh, that, that, I think it's Hebrews says that, that a father disciplines those that he loves. And God loves his people so much that he, he, he wants to get their attention. He wants to say to them, hey, you need to follow me. I am the one who saved you. I'm the one who bought you at an incredible price. And, and so he, he, he doesn't enjoy doing it. But after a great, great deal of patience and long suffering, God sends the nations around Israel to, to punish them by taking them to slavery. And, and, and the irony of it all, they've They're being punished because they're worshipping fertility gods like Baal who are supposed to satisfy and and mean that their crops will be abundant and rain will be sufficient. And and what does God do? He says, well, I'm going to send people to steal your abundant crops. You're not going to benefit by worshipping these false gods. And and so they send people to to steal the crops and, and, and God punishes the people of Israel. We see in verse 15 it says that the strong hand of the Lord is no longer for His people, but against His people. Until at last, we see in in verses 16 to 18, the people of God get to the point where they go, click, maybe it's because we're not worshipping God. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, this worship of Baal just doesn't work. And so they call out to God and they say, please, 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 we are in such distress. Please save us. And God, being loving and God being their God and, and they being God's people, God says, yes, I will save you because of my compassion, because this is what I wanted to do all along. I just want you to turn to me. And He raises up judges and, and, they, and they go out and they, and they rescue the people, usually a, a militarily thing. By the way, judges, there's only one judge who we're told does anything like a judge today. It's, it's Deborah who sits and solves problems. The judges are, are the military Heroes who, who stand up and, and restore the fortunes of God's people. God raises them up for that particular purpose. We've got here two generations, or two styles of generation. Those from the Egyptian exodus and those who knew nothing of God's saving. 
And when they did, when God did save them, it was from such a comparatively small problem that God saved them. 400 years in Egypt. God saves you, you're going to remember that. A few years. The judges period is 200 years long. A few years of slavery. Oh, you're going to be thankful for a while. You're going to be thankful for a while, but but the sad thing about the story of the judges is that each time the people turned back to God, it was more about solving the problem on the ground than actually loving God. It's so easy to think of God as an emergency aid service or to think of God as an ambulance officer. God, I've got a problem, right? God rushes in, saves us, takes us away, fixes us up, we come out. You know, there's there's some research uh, done in the U.S. that says quite a few people who have heart bypasses die after they've had a heart bypass because of complications. And the reason they have complications is because they don't change their lifestyle. They have a heart attack because they've been eating fatty foods and not exercising and doing all of this. They get fixed up. The doctor says to them, right, you need to now change the way you live. And they go, yes, 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 yes. And probably for a week or so. And then a few years later, that's what the Israelites are like. They have a spiritual heart attack God fixes them up and they turn around and say, meh, I actually quite enjoy the way I live. And so once again we see them enmeshed in sin. Verse 19 says to us that they don't just go back to sinning, they they go deeper into sinning. Deeper and deeper and further and further away from God. And it makes sense in our own personal experience, doesn't it? That God has given us an incredible gift in our conscience. But when we choose to sin, it's like we add layers of muffling over our conscience. You know, one layer of cotton wool is not going to muffle it very much. And then another layer and another layer, and another layer, and another layer, and another layer, until you sin and you don't know any problem with it. This is what we have here. We have this this layering on of, of cotton wool against the voice of God calling His people home. You get to the point where all that you need is is a miracle for God to break through those layers of habit and behavior and thinking. And ultimately what we need is, is as Romans 12, 2 says, we need God to transform us by, or transform us into a new person by changing the way we think. Because sin forms thought habits in our lives. 
and progressively it gets darker unless it is checked. That's what we've got here in Judges. We have the habit of abandoning God, forming, and it gets easier every time. And so we read in chapter 2, verse 20, that God says, not Deuteronomy, we'll read from Judges, chapter 2, verse 20, The Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he said, Because these people have violated my covenant, which I made with their ancestors, and have ignored my commands, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered when he died. I did this to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. That is why the Lord left those nations in place. Summarizing it all, God says, you have abandoned me and I want you to follow me. He says he left the nations there to test the Israelites. That the constant pressure and temptation to give in, to follow the ways of the world, to follow the ways of the people around, the constant pressure is there, says God, not to pull us away from Him, but to test whether we will stay true to Him. You know, it's so tempting for us Christians to start forming ghettos, and, and this is where Christians go, and we'll, we'll block ourselves off from the world outside, and, and we'll make sure that there is no influence that could maybe drag us away, and maybe tempt us to abandon God, and maybe pull us in this direction, and, and we'll put our children there, and we'll put our, our other people there, and we'll make sure that there is no way on earth that we can be contaminated by the world. And we think, what a wonderful idea, but God turns around and says, no, that's a horrible idea. My idea is that you are in the world so that you will have to choose whether you will follow me. God says, I left my people in the midst of these nations. And yes, the nations are there because my people were unfaithful to me, but I'm leaving them there so that they will have to choose whether they will obey me. You know, it's easy to be faithful if you are living in a faith environment. But it's also easy to live on the faith of others. It's easy to live on the faith of Joshua and the elders and those who truly know God. But whether you know God is truly tested when you step outside. When the temptations are real. Because true worship of God, it requires an absolute exclusive obedience and allegiance. God says, don't just follow me because that's the only option. Follow me because I am the only good option and the only true option. And don't follow the other gods. A theologian called Proven says to us of these gods, and, and they worshipped Baal and the Ashtoreths, I can never pronounce that, these, these gods of the nations, fertility gods, meant to provide you with goodness and crops and wealth and 
children. Proven, this theologian says, that the old guards are still with us. They've simply changed their clothes so that they merge more easily into the modern crowd. They still claim to offer meaning to life. They still claim to explain the universe. They still claim to provide the basis for personal security. They still demand wholehearted commitment from their worshippers. Christians, he says, ought to be free of them, for a truly Christian view of the world gives the basis for such freedom. There are many Christians today who, who want to be like the Israelites of old, who claim God and say, yes, yes, God, God, ancestor of Abraham, and yet who also want to follow other gods. And there are many gods. You, you know what it is that, that takes the place of God in your own life. Um, wealth, another person, family, happiness. Anything in which we place our trust other than God is placed there in our lives by God to ask us the simple question. And it's the question that Jesus asked Peter Remember, Peter's the one who denied Jesus three times, wept when he saw Jesus' face after the third denial. And then after the resurrection, Jesus met them on the beach, cooked them some fish. Isn't that nice? I, I love that God cooks fish, a fish breakfast. Not my personal cup of tea, but, but God cooks them fish for breakfast. Isn't that nice? And as he's sitting there, he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, and this is the question. God places the, the things in our life there to ask us. He says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter being Peter, he says just off the bat, yes, Lord, of course you know I love you. Jesus slows down. I, I half imagine him looking at Peter and saying, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Sometimes Jesus asks us with the words and sometimes he asks us with the challenge. Do you love me more than these? Or do you just call on my name because it's what we do? May we love him. May we trust Him. May our faith in Him be our own. And may our faith in Him rest on what He has done for us. He rescued us. He died for us. He rose for us. He is coming back for us. We've remembered it in communion. If that's not real for you, 
if your faith is resting on somebody else's, have a chat to, to someone. Because when the difficult times come, if your faith is not your own, you will drown. But remember, God is asking you every day, will you trust me? Because you are mine. Amen. I think we've lost our, uh, our worship leader to the outside, the, the elements. Um, so you have the great joy and horror of me suggesting that we sing a final song together. Let's sing Build Your Kingdom Here. Do you want to ask the kids back in? Do you want to bring them back in?